0: Now it's time for the other side of the news and the other side of the issues. From the other side of Texas, with your host, Jay Leeson.
1: Well, welcome in. Welcome in. Glad you guys are with us here. On the other side, welcome into the West Texas Accessory Depot Studios. Go see the folks at Accessory Depot on 82nd Valencia and Lubbock for all your car or truck accessory needs. And get this, other side listeners can get a free row of WeatherTech liners with the purchase of a bed cover. Check them out at 806-866-9494 or WTAccessoryDepot.com. Big show ahead of you today. Ross Ramsey coming up in a little bit, as well as Chairman of House Agriculture, Mike Conaway going to join us here on the program. And then Catherine Boudreaux of Politico. She's an ag reporter with Politico. A lot ahead for those of you on the other sides of Texas. But first, you know, I don't talk about social issues a whole lot. And and people get concerned that I don't talk about those things. But let me say, I have a uh, I've worked in college, and I'll get into this here in a second, but in college and in high school, I was very involved with evangelical Christian groups and, and uh, went on in college and was a youth minister and, and then went to a, uh, to a seminary, to Asbury Seminary, and that's a holiness Methodist seminary. And I've learned the ins and outs, and I understand the discussions. And, but I do think, you know, I'm talking about Lauren Falkenberg columnist with the Houston Chronicle here in a bit, I do think that to a large extent, social issues in Texas politics today uh, become weapons of mass distraction. And that's provable by the environment in Texas politics today. And I 100% believe that's the truth. And where I come at all this from, from trying to talk about issues on the other side of Texas, the simple premise is this. If if you got social issues you're concerned about, that Assumes that you've got a society in which to hold those views and in more and more of the other sides of Texas and rural contexts, That question is very much at stake right now And so to get off and to focus on these social issues while important and I believe they are very important But I think that they are leveraged by groups to distract and to oftentimes exploit good God-fearing, honest people and cajole them into voting against their own economic interests. So, I'm the most pro-life guy around, and everybody knows it. I mean, you want to come at me on social media streets and say you're more pro-life than me? I'll put your virtual teeth on a virtual internet curb and American history ex-stomp the back of your virtual head. Like, that's how hardcore pro-life I am. You know, it, to prove it, you come to my house and see my house at 6 a.m. any day of the week. And what you'll see are three kiddos who were born 20 months apart from one another, by the way. Daughter, who's 10, and twin boys who are 8, and then a little surprise, who's 4 years old. And speaking of pro-life, you know, I struggled for a long time with the vasectomy issue. I should have given you a warning to turn down your radios if you got young ears listening. Three, two, one. But at least I'm not the lieutenant governor uh, on the radio getting a vasectomy while I'm on the radio. But that really was, I mean, that was a big issue for me. And to wrestle through that, to talk with friends and then, you know, with ministers, to make that decision... Although it is quote unquote reversible was a considerable decision. But anyway, my house is is a wild party at 6 a.m. You know, in college I had a bumper sticker and it said I survived Roe v Wade. And I drew cartoons for the at that time it was called the University Daily at Texas Tech. I had a baby in the womb holding a Bush 2000 sign uh, with a baby with fret on its face holding a bush 2000 sign i, I drew a cartoon that causes caused this huge uproar of a texas tech maintenance guy urinating his back was towards uh the viewer but urinating out in the big fountain at the front of campus and the other maintenance guy leaning into the shot and saying he says it's his body his choice to just delineate there that there are social implications uh, to that which is often billed as quote unquote a personal decision. And The first social decision is the baby involved, and the second are the extension of others involved in it. Um, you know, it, in youth ministry, I used to take kids on, I'd take a couple hundred kids on mission trips, and one mission trip we did uh, a few times, a few summers. Was to go to New Orleans, and we would work with a pro-life group in New Orleans. And the requisite of uh, participation on that trip was that they come one night during the week before the trip, a week-long trip, and we watch Silent Scream. I mean, in Silent Scream, if you've not seen it, is is a classic uh, pro-life. I guess made in the '70s. I, I, I hadn't seen it of late, but when you watch and whenever they and their families were there, you know that was the requirement. You had to come with a family member and watch silent screaming. Whenever a kid who's got a B.S. barometer like nobody else, when they see that, whenever they or anyone else see an abortion, you cringe because it's not right it's intrinsically intuitionally instinctively not right not by the natural law or the God's law and I firmly believe that and and I've seen that play out with you know I've had to minister to young women who've had abortions and they are not all right but and it's just not right now in Texas politics today there are groups who tap into this intuition and this instinct and they exploit for their own political purposes often well capitalized political purposes I mean, think about it if you were gonna build the narwhal of political machines what would you do you would stack up your own economic and political interests and just make a stack you know imagine if we could tap into Texas education dollars Uh, that would be a huge cash cow we'll do it with false pretension and we'll call it by different names vouchers school choice but we want those dollars that's in our interest and there are groups out there right now and that's their aim Uh, number two uh, you would say well we need there to be tax caps and appraisal caps to help break local government for whatever purpose and, and so on and then you would flank your own economic political interests with a big tank with a big pro-life tank and anytime an elected leader did not do what you wanted them to do on your own political economic interests, whether that's vouchers or uh, tax caps whatever the case might be you would fire the pro-life tank at them and you would send and by fire the tank I mean send thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of Uh, mailers into a district to mislead and tempt good God-fearing people you know grandma Moses is sitting there and she gets a mailer that says so-and-so is for abortion because it's not that they voted against pro-life issues it's that they did not kowtow on the other issues and so they weaponized the issue of abortion and if you can hear disdain growing in my voice, it's because this is the grossest kind of politics. And I say that from a pro-life position. These elected leaders defy you on other issues, and so you fire the abortion tank at them. And it's despicable. A guy has a 100% voting record by an organization's own scorecard for several sessions and then they don't kowtow on the political and economic issues and so they move the goalpost and they turn on them anyway and that's exactly the case right now in Texas politics and to name names and it's not everyone involved in this organization but it's certainly the leadership of this organization and it's called Texas right to life and whenever you get mailers you need to look at whether or not it came from Texas Right to Life because it has an association with empowered Texans. And whenever elected leaders don't kowtow to empower Texans' economic and political interests, then they utilize the tank that is Texas Right to Life to blow them up. And case in point, and I'm looking at Texas Right to Life's uh, scorecards right now, and I see Representative Dan Flynn, and I see Chris Patty out of East Texas and Wayne Faircloth, Galveston, South Texas, Giovanni Capriglione. These guys all have multiple 100% ratings from Texas Right to Life. But they defied empowered Texans and they defied other interests on policy concerns, political and economic. And so, boom, boom, bang goes the Texas Right to Life tanks and thousands of dollars floated in mailers into districts and they misportray the issue and it's just an absolute distortion of facts and it's lying to good and sincere people and they bastardize the very cause that they proclaim to uphold and that is innocent life this is why the democrats have made movement on this issue because it's so blatant Blatantly apparent in Texas political circles that these, that, well, Texas right to life specifically is a front for these other groups. And whenever you don't kowtow to them, you get hit with those issues. There are good people like Texas Alliance for Life. And this is, uh, Joe, Dr. Joe Poyman, uh, Kyleen Wright. And they hit the places that can still be hit under federal law and they do that and they've been doing it for decades now and, and not out of self-interest they are committed to this issue and I and I applied Texans Alliance for Life in that now back to the ministry thing and this is this is the other side of the issue that I want to get into yeah I've spent a lot of time with an organization in the Dominican Republic it's called Jack, Jackie's house and I'm sure you can google it you can see Jackie's house in the Dominican Republic sweet Jackie takes children in most of them abandoned often handicapped always poor and they're the children of Haitian prostitutes by and large and being involved with Jackie and being involved there has really challenged me to a full commitment to life in all of life and if we're gonna throw Bible stuff around a biblical integrity on the issue of life before and after the womb and I look at Texas right now... You know, Well, let me back up. You know, Freakonomics. Uh, if you've ever read Freakonomics, you know the premise of the book comes from Steve Levitt, who's an economist at the University of Chicago. And he came out with a report that made the left and the right irate when he correlated a link between legalized abortion and then crime rates falling some 18, 20 years later. And Levitt's premise was that in most cases abortions take place in poor minority demographics. And he made that correlation. Well you can read more free about that. But I just I look at this issue now and I, I think about Jackie's house and the way that this abortion issue is being exploited in Texas. And look, headline federal judge says texas still needs oversight to fix its broken foster care system headline texas denied thousands of students special ed services headline texas medicaid cuts leave special needs kids kids that often have g-tubes kids that that oftentimes live in wheelchairs and their families are committed to life and they can't get Uh, the therapy that they have because we're cutting those programs the very same people who holler the loudest about pro-life and this is the shame of it have done nothing or little on these issues now I understand that there was a rush to try to fix things in the last legislature but the fact of the matter is those things don't happen overnight and many of us are disingenuous whenever we say that we are for these things now that's just further proof that this issue by many has been bastardized. And they have no shame in exploiting, well in distorting the truth to good people with sincere moral concerns and they have no shame in exploiting the blood of murdered babies to achieve political and economic policy objectives for their own political and economic interests. And that's the Other Side intro right there. We're going to go to a quick break. We're going to be back in about a minute, maybe 90 seconds. I'll have to look at the rundown. i got two worked up. Get in at some news around Texas before we get Ross Ramsey in the following segment. Stick with us right here, Other Side of Texas.
2: Well, God bless Texas.
1: This segment is brought to you by Racer Car Wash, voted Lubbock's best wash for 5 years running. Stop in to one of 5 convenient locations across Hub City for the best wash around, guaranteed. Check them out at racerwash.com. Want to get into some news here, some little sister news. You got any Can you play something for us Anthony? Some uh some news, some make it dramatic. Anthony Anthony's been doing this for years and years. He knows dramatic. And now, Little Sisters News. That was, that was dramatic. Thank you, buddy. Hey, um, a few things I noted over the weekend, two of which were from uh, Amarillo Globe News. Uh, you know, they put up a, an editorial this weekend about uh, the need for term limits. And, you know, it just got me to thinking. Uh, John Smithy, state representative out of amarillo is the second to most tenured republican in the in the texas house and uh you know good people can argue about how effective well i don't think you can be you can argue how effective smithy's been but whether or not there should be term limits involved there i think would have certainly been problematic go a little bit south of uh amarillo pete laney uh i think there's uh wide consensus that for price has been quite an asset for Amarillo as well as uh, Kel Seliger get more of a Kel Seliger here in just a moment Mac Thornberry and uh, uh the chair of House Armed Services and you know there is that little uh little facility there in Amarillo where they construct and disassemble nuclear warheads Pantex um that took some political muscle um but you know look this is this is what i say the the problem the challenge you get into with term limits and this is not just in amarillo but everywhere is you run the risk of bureaucrats running your government at whatever level and uh it's just a choice between the lesser two evils i mean do you want incumbents that are sitting on you know i'm broadcasting from lubbock uh Everybody knew that Randy Nagabauer, Jody Arrington's predecessor in uh, this 19th Congressional District of Texas, he had so much money stacked up you couldn't do anything about it. And so there's the problem of incumbency, whenever it gets lazy, versus the problem of uh, bureaucrats running the show. Um, in the first session, we'll just talk about Texas, uh, you learn where the paperclips are. And learn where the bathrooms are, and then and people show you that. Oftentimes, staffers who've worked there for a long time and and teach you the ins and outs. And then in the second session, maybe you figure out uh, where the replacement toilet paper is, and so on and so forth. You know, in the in in his first session, uh, Dustin Burroughs um, had a a pretty rough go of it, and I was called by a statewide. Uh, out uh, well this text monthly and uh, an inquiry about whether or not uh, burrows should be on the furniture list you know they come up with this list and people are ineffective who might as well be furniture and and i you know at the time i thought that was a bit unfair i mean i don't know that you would go that way with a first-termer and and they didn't and i thought that that was fair unless a first-termer named john Frulo Uh, I love it, and uh, you pass 25 bills or whatever in your first session. But the point is is that bureaucrats can wind up running the show. You know, Thad Cochran is the senior senator. This is what nobody on the Hill wants to talk about on live air. But Thad Cochran is the senior senator from uh, Mississippi. And he is also the chair of of Senate Appropriations. Like a very powerful position. But Thad Cochran is nowhere to be found. And it's because he's in diminishing health. And I I don't wish any ill upon him. But it helps illuminate the case that whenever you're dealing with disaster bills and you're dealing with massive issues, government shutdowns, and the Appropriations Chair is uh, indisposed at the moment then bureaucrats and staffers and chiefs of staff wind up running the show and that's what term limits can. That's just the other side of, of that particular issue. Next up, same thing, Amarillo Globe News. Um, this editorial, this, and I don't know what to make of this and I've talked with several people today that don't know what to make of it. There was an editorial this weekend by Dave Henry in the the title was, Is There a Conspiracy in West Texas? And the conspiracy being that uh, that uh, Victor Leal, uh, Amarillo restaurateur, tier, or whatever you say it, is just running in that race to siphon votes from Kel Seliger to get Seliger into a runoff with Mike cannon, because that 's the weirdest shaped district in state politics, Amarillo down the New Mexico line to Midland, and it's not a conspiracy that's I, I think a lot of people see that as as fact and here 's my problem. You can go check out the editorial there at Amarillo Globe News, but what it didn 't state was that Victor Leal was a uh, on the board of Texas Public Policy Foundation. And if you don't know what that is, just look it up. But the point is this. Texas Public Policy Foundation, for the duration of time that Leal was there, 2010 to 2016, fought the Krez the line, the wind energy projects in the panhandle. And it fought public education. So to say, oh, it's a conspiracy that Leal's running to give other people the upper hand, I don't think is conspiracy because it's been proven out as fact, though in lesser roles, over time. I mean, come on, you're going to call that conspiracy? Like, oh, I mean, that's what has happened. And I think that, you know, it, I don't even know how to even go on with that, but I do know that that my friend, Leonard T. Jenkins, is on the line. Leonard, are you there? I, I am here. Can you hear me, Jay? Yeah, I, I can. How are things going? Well, they were
2: going just fine. I'm driving down the road, pulling my 1997 Jayco J Jay flight, and then I start <laughs> hearing you just uh, getting all lathered up and... Preaching and hollering. Next thing I know, you're inviting me to your house at 6 o'clock in the morning and talking about vasectomies. And and, uh, it made me nervous. I mean, the hair on my neck started standing up with all your preaching and got sweaty and got those beads of Presbyterian on my forehead. I didn't know what to make of it. Pretty good. Pretty good for a Methodist, huh? Man, you were doing just fine, just to getting it. Hey, it so was real nice.
1: I know that you've got some interest here. We're going to have uh, Chairman House Ag Mike Conaway on here in a little while, but uh, you've got you a know, real interest in cotton getting back into Title One, back into the Price Loss Coverage Program.
2: I sure do, and I, I'm grateful for uh, Ag Chairman Mike Conaway and uh, Jody Arrington getting that safety net for cotton last week. You know, in technical terms, that means that cotton producers are now eligible for the price loss coverage program. And that is a great deal. But for me, as a designated stripper, you know, where I go in uh, every once in a while when the guys call me and they need help and
1: I get up to bat, this is a big win for me. Well, 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 a designated cotton stripper, right? Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. People, can you know
2: the miss here. The money's real good in stripping, Jay. It just is, and so I, I'm excited about it. But talking about that safety net that uh, that Conway got through, uh-huh. it reminded me of the safety net of your vasectomy. And uh, I mean, seriously, why would you share that with all of uh, Texas? Do you think I give a rat behind about your vasectomy? No, but am I better for it now? Probably so. Probably so, like, I, Leonard. I feel like I feel like you and I have just logged a lot of miles <laughs> together because I, I've heard your deep, dark secrets of hey, all your private
1: areas. That's what we try to do here on the other side, just forge relationships. I have another question for you. What's that, Leonard?
2: Earlier in your broadcast, uh-huh. you started talking about uh, the bastardization, about <laughs> bastardizing. Uh-huh. And um, that was, That's a fancy word you use. Now, if I go up, I know sometimes I take my clothes to the dry cleaners uh-huh. and I can get the, the hour-long uh, martinizing. If I ask for the hour-long bastardizing, what will come up, What will become of my clothes then? <laughs> Nothing that I can say on live air, Leonard. Huh. I understand. <laughs> well, well hey, when, you get, when you can tell me what, what that means, I would love to know about it. Because oh, okay. if they can All put right. that... If they can put that on my clothes, I would love
1: it. Uh, look, you called in uh, in the middle of the news. My last news story here was that, uh, according to the TheAthletic.com, Big 12 title chances, uh, as of today, Texas Tech 80%, Kansas 34%, uh, OU 1%. Um, if, uh, if we wind up winning the Big 12 and going on, uh, maybe win the national championship, uh, what all would we name after Chris Beard Leonard T. Jenkins
2: well I think we could definitely uh, I think we could definitely rename 34th Street yeah Beard Street I mean 34th just comes to mind I mean uh, it'd be fun to have a uh, make that Chris Beard Boulevard
3: oh
1: Um,
2: you know, and uh, I'm sure there are a lot of struggling restaurants that would love to take his name over. And I might even uh, I might even name my dog that. Okay. You know? Beard I mean, Burgers? He doesn't, he, he doesn't mind me much anyway, but if I start calling him Chris Beard, he might get his guns up
1: on me. All right. Well, fair enough. Hey, uh, Leonard T., thank you for listening, buddy.
2: Hey, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jay. Um, and, and try and settle down a little bit. All Maybe right. listening to some Dan Fogelberg or something to relax you a little bit. Um, but it's always a pleasure. All right. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, all right?
1: And be careful designated stripping, bud.
2: I will. Peace in the Middle East, my friend.
1: With that, we're going to go to a break. We're going to get Ross Ramsey on the phone, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Stick with us. We'll be back here within, like what, seconds. I don't like the way the stocks are down.
0: When you're best friends with the founder of the Lubbock County Militia, you get your own radio show. It's The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. I took a double take
2: out on the interstate when I saw her making eyes at me.
1: Hey. welcome back in this segment brought to you by title one lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company title one is committed to providing the highest level of communication and service from the time of contract until close see how title one can serve your realty consumer and lending needs at title one.com ross ramsey executive editor of the texas tribune thanks for coming on ross you bet you bet uh, happy to be here is it going to slow down anytime soon uh, not till March 7th, and, you know, probably not then. Yeah. Then there's the fallout afterwards. So, for new listeners, Ross Ramsey writes a column uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at org, and, and I'll just say this, new program, new format, Ross, whenever I, people ask me from time to time where I learned about Texas politics, it started with printing off Ross Ramsey columns and with a highlighter and and you do a great service to Texas I'm so glad you uh, come on the other side with us so that the latest column um, is uh, you come at the king you best not miss Greg Abbott's working hard to defeat three incumbent Republican House members Ross what do you make of it well he's trying to enforce his will on the Texas legislature the governor said you
4: know early in the session that he was going to be keeping score on who was with him and who was against him and he was kind of fuzzy about that during the legislative session, a little bit less so during the special session that followed last summer, and he is now coming after three legislators from around Texas who are in his party, but not in his good graces, and uh, he's spending some money against them and hoping to knock them off and replace them with Republicans that like his programs better than they do.
1: So, what happens if, what if he ha- what if he loses, and in, what if he goes... Uh, two for three. What if he loses one of those? You know the problem with this is they come back, and you know if I if I'm
4: if I think you're on my side and I'm back, then we'll try to work together. You know even if we differ once in a while, if I know you worked against me and tried to knock me off, I don't any longer have any reason. You know, all other things being equal, to take your side of a fight, and you know, Greg Abbott's taking a little bit of a risk here. It's it's a break of precedent. Most governors don't do this. Most lieutenant governors don't do this. And both Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick have decided to get involved in races involving incumbents in their own side. And, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But if those guys come back, they're going to be problems for the leadership.
1: Hey, I liken it a little bit to Jonathan Stickland is elected out of Hearst, Ulyss Bedford. And, uh, you know, former speaker, or I say former outgoing Speaker of the House, Joe Strauss, uh House leadership, and then groups that are affiliated with them tried to go at Stickland and lost. I think by 15 points or so. Uh, Stickland's just not beatable now, and at least in my mind. And would that be the case with whether that's Faircloth or uh, that's Davis or uh, Lyle Larson? You know, they're all in uh, districts that are. Uh, I
4: guess. I guess the first two are in districts that could go either way. So. Faircloth could, um, he took a seat from a Democrat, and in a particular election, everything rolls just the wrong way for the Republicans, a Democrat could win that again. Sarah Davis is in one of the state's few true swing districts. You know, it could go to a Democrat or a Republican on any given day. Do you
1: really, I mean, I've heard people say no, I mean, like the folks that tried to get her censured, say no, that's not the case, she can't, a Democrat can't win here. You think otherwise
4: i think otherwise i think the numbers are pretty clear there you know hillary clinton clinton beat donald trump in that district uh... the wendy davis greg abbott race four years ago was close in that district i think that one could go either way a moderate republican is probably is her, her argument is that a moderate republican is the only kind of republican who can hold it and and one of her contentions is if greg abbott's candidate beats her in the primary and they send a much more conservative republican to the general election that the, the democrats will have a leg up Some of the folks on the other side of that fight say, you know, Sarah Davis is, uh, these are some of the most conservative Republicans, say that Sarah Davis is so moderate that it wouldn't really hurt them to have a Democrat there instead of her. Um, At least they'd know where they were coming from. So it's a tough race. I think she's got the upper hand in that race right now. Um, She's pretty well liked in that district. She's been working hard. She knew the governor was coming for. That's kind of interesting. Faircloth is probably in a little bit more trouble, um, just because his district is a little bit different, and the governor's uh, hit on him is a little bit different. Um, he didn't, you know, buck up as quickly, and probably isn't in as good a defensive position. Lauren Larson in San Antonio has been a, you know, a figure in San Antonio politics for a long time. And I really don't think he's in much trouble at all. It's a district that the Democrats probably cannot win, so I think this whole fight's in the Republican primary. And I think, the, you know, you never know what's going to happen in an election, but the way to bet in that one is on the incumbent. So, so but what in, did, in all of those cases, you could get an incumbent back who's got no reason to do favors for the Republican governor.
1: Well, talking to people down the Galveston way, people are just perplexed at, uh, what did Faircloth do? he
4: appeared at a fundraiser in Chambers County which is one of the counties, you know, one of the Gulf Coast counties in his district and said that he had voted for a piece of legislation that was actually proposed by Lyle Larson that would have barred anyone who gives a governor $2500 or more in an election cycle from being appointed to a board or commission so if you give money to the governor, you you can give a little bit and still stay in, but if you give a lot of money, they were calling it pay for play and saying you can't do that anymore. Uh faircloth's one of the people who voted for that and said at this fundraiser or a town hall or something like that along the way that um he had been hearing that the governor's office was trading some of these things to high bidders. He said, Now if if that turns out not to be true, I'll pull it back. But that video went around and got circulated by Empower Texans and some other groups, and probably helped the governor make up his mind on how to go in the Faircloth race.
1: This uh, you said earlier that there's a sentiment that so what if a Democrat wins? It couldn't get much worse, on you know with true believers on the GOP side. Um, This sounds a little bit like the end of the Democratic reign in Texas, does it not? That Hey, so
4: what? It has has a difference. The Republicans, at the time the Democrats came apart in Texas, when they finally came apart in Texas, the Republicans were in a position to catch it and were in a position to take advantage of the acrimony on the Democratic side. So you had conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats fighting with each other. And a lot of the people who were conservative Democrats at some point threw up their arms and said, "I'm going to start voting with the Republicans." You know, the Reagan Democrats were one group of those. There were some Democrats who voted for Bill Clements when he ran for uh, the governor's office, and the Republicans. You know, um, just 14 years after, um, or I guess 16 years after Clements finally threw the Democratic hold on statewide offices. The Republicans started a sweep that they haven't lost since. Nobody, no Democrat has won a statewide office since 1994. Mm. So the the difference here is the Democrats in Texas aren't particularly in a position to um, accommodate moderate Republicans right now. They're having kind of a bed of their own, and you know some of the Democrats don't want moderates in their
1: party. So no. just by the, virtue of just a rabbit trail here, but I was I was just just perplexed that Andrew White comes out of the gates a candidate for governor, Mark White's son uh, I'm not informing you of that, Ross, by the way to to listeners, <laughs> but he comes out of the gates and immediately gets blown up by by Wendy Davis's pink shoes like he's pro-life, he has no place in this party, and what does that say to people that are becoming more and more disenchanted with Republican politics in this state? Well, you know, it tells you that
4: some of the Democrats are intractable on the pro-choice, pro-life issue, on abortion rights, and, you know, that's that's one of the issues. In the same way that um, some Republicans are intractable on gun rights issues, you know, there are a couple of things that are just dears to the people who are in the two parties, and, you know, they'll accept a concession here and there, but not on some of their bedrock issues. Until you get a little bit more accommodating to people who agree with you 70 or 80% of the time, it's hard to build a bigger party.
1: Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, let's move over right quick. Uh, this, I look, uh, you know Pete Laney, I know Pete Laney, I've heard Pete Laney say for years and years uh, that you know teachers can talk a big game but we'll see if they show up um they're really worked up right now it seems to me i mean public education teachers see what's going on and i it seems like the senate's beginning to play a little defense on it the texas senate there was a senate select committee on property tax reform and relief they kind of go on these road shows and they were in houston on the first of uh, february and a new a new talking point came out that charles perry uh sitting on that committee said that the real contribution of the from the state in the public education is closer to fifty percent when you uh, allow for local debt to be involved in the equation is that accurate or is the Senate really reeling under a lot of public pressure right now
4: well I think both of those things are true I think you know what um, Senator Perry says is true but it's also also always been true you know the if you just look at what they call and O maintenance and operations the state pays this percent the locals pay that percent but the state's been paying a lower and lower percent of that and you know the overall cost of educating kids on a per student basis the state spends less now than it did ten years ago if you account for increases in state spending and faster increases in the population of students in the Texas schools even on the M&O side the state is falling behind it is true that a lot of the tax bill that you pay is for you know bonds and things the local school districts counter by saying they don't have any debt their voters didn't approve you know they put those things out for you know those bond elections and voters say yes or no and you know the voters are in on that decision and it's a little bit different what the schools in the state are arguing about right now Kind of loudly, and I think this is going to carry into the next legislative session, is whether the state's paying its fair share of the cost of public education and whether that system is correctly balanced right now. And the locals say that it's not. The state's uh, top state officials, um, the governor, the lieutenant governor, a lot of those senators, and a lot of House members are hearing from voters and taxpayers who are angry about rising property taxes and they're promising to do something about it. The school districts and the cities and counties want the state to admit its complicity in that and help lower those taxes by um, picking up its share.
1: Uh, So, Tell me what your read is. I'm not asking you to make predictions, but what's your read based upon your observation of uh, public education advocates and teachers and employees being involved in these primaries? Do you think they'll have a higher turnout than normal?
4: You know, I think that whenever you base your plans for an election outcome on something happening that hasn't been happening before, you're on pretty thin ice. Mm. And I think the people that are counting on the difference being a bunch of teachers voting who've never voted before, you know, they could turn out to be right, but it would be really unusual. Usually the case is that the turnout is about what the turnout is, and, you know, people get upset, but they often don't get upset enough to get off the couch. It, it, depends on a particular specific level of people looking up in a given race and saying I have a choice between a candidate I like in this race and a candidate I don't like and when it gets specific like that sometimes that draws people out but if you have just kind of a general feeling about you know I'm mad at those guys that's not really uh, usually a turnout driver.
1: So, uh, Ross Ramsey, you follow him at Ross Ramsey on Twitter. What are you working on? What, what can we expect next at TexasTribune.org?
4: Uh, you know, we're looking at, we're watching these primaries. The voting, early voting starts a week from tomorrow, wow. so it's right upon us. And I think you're going to be seeing a lot more advertising and a lot more, um, a lot higher pitch in these elections. Uh, the election itself is on March 6th. On March 7th, we'll have the first, you know, look at, you know, what happened and, and how this year is going to go. One of the things that's interesting about Texas is we're the earliest primary in the country this year, and in a year when everybody nationally in politics or watching politics is trying to figure out what Trump's midterm elections are going to look like, is going to be looking at Texas and trying to see if there's an early sign of what happens in the states that are later on down the calendar.
1: Hmm. He is Ross Ramsey. Thank you, Ross. You're D you? Happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you, buddy hey i want to let you know let me give you a little little inside scoop here back in august i was driving home alone from the station and uh taken in lubbock if you're familiar with lubbock you come on 84 and then that turns into avenue q and it was a monsoon i think it was the last time it rained <laughs> maybe and out of nowhere someone ran a stop sign and nailed me and uh I don't know if you've ever been T-boned. I was T-boned in a 2002 F-250 power stroke. Uh, but it jars you. And as, as soon as your mind comes to its right terms, you have some immediate thoughts. The so first is, uh, I'm, I'm okay? Goodness, I'm glad I'm okay. I can't believe it. The second is, call 911 uh, and the next thing you think is my insurance agent got to get him on the phone and the next one is I need a car guy and I didn't have a car guy at that time but I made a shift to shift automotive group Uh, Derek Beard's been doing car business 20 years worked on pavement a lot. He's installed the accessories and he's financed the deals and now he's got his own dealership. Check him out. Shift Automotive Group in Lubbock. Real cars for real people at really great prices. Shift just outside of Loop 289 in Lubbock on 58th Street. Check them out at shiftlubbock.com 806-993-1094. That's 806-993-1094.
0: Molded out of red clay and Baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson.
1: Adios, goodbye amigos, I am leaving you today. Welcome back in to the West Texas Accessory Depot Studios. Go see the folks at Accessory Depot on 82nd Valencia and Lubbock for all your car and truck accessory needs. And get this, other side listeners can get a free row of WeatherTech liners with the purchase of a bed cover. Check them out. They dressed me up. They can dress you up too. 806-866-9494. Depot.com. In the early 2000s, U.S. cotton became embroiled in a dispute with Brazil at the World Trade Organization. The eventual result was that cotton was excluded from the 2014 Farm Bill, making it the only U.S. agricultural commodity to not have a safety net. Elected out of the Texas 11th Congressional District in 2005, Midland's Mike Conaway serves as chair of U.S. House Agriculture. And last week, cotton, by the way, was restored to a Farm Bill safety net, a restoration for which many credit the Ag chairman. So, Chairman Conaway, how are you?
3: Well, Jay, thank you very much. I'm doing great, and uh, there were a lot of folks that pitched in on it. Not the least of whom was uh, Jody Arrington, helped in to continue the message and continue to push on the the various folks that uh, were part of that legislative win. But a uh, great day on Friday when we finally got it passed. Uh, take makes up a little bit for the hurt we felt uh, last, uh, you know, August, April when when we were not able to get it done then. But uh, uh, for the 18 crop year, the Title one is back in for what we were now for to a seed cotton, and uh, it's, the, it's the right answer. So uh, looking forward to being able to uh, confirm that in the far bill that uh, will be for you know crop years nineteen on. But uh, we're uh, we let me just say this on Saturday's uh, National Cotton Council meeting in Dallas Fort Worth or in
1: Fort Worth they were uh, in a good mood. I bet you, I bet you they were perfect timing there. So will this be ready for the eighteen? Crop or the nineteen,
3: eighteen. This yeah, this is the eighteen crop. farm okay. bill it's itself would probably the nineteen crop. So this gets it one year earlier, and yeah. uh, you know, obviously not a year too soon. We'd like we'd like to have done it for the seventeen crop year, but this was eighteen. Uh, we're still talking to folks about what we do in, but anything else we do, but but this uh, this fixes for eighteen. Yeah, so, and forward. I mean, you know, once you put it in place, it stays until we mess it up again.
1: Chairman Mike Conaway, join us here on the program. You were elected into Congress as an accountant, is that correct? Well, I'm a CPA by profession, yes. Yeah, and now you may have, you know, you're talking about Fort Worth this last weekend. There may be statues erected of you outside of cotton gins all throughout West Texas (laughs) and South Texas. Talk to me a little bit about that journey from 2005 to now and becoming, uh, many look at you and say, well, that's a lead expert in U.S. cotton.
3: Well, uh, there, there's some folks out there that have been with him this whole journey. They've seen a you know start. Uh, start to it was a little different. I actually started campaigning in 2002 to re- help replace or try to replace Larry Combest in that uh, special election for 19, for District 19, and uh, I, I lost to Larry to uh, to Larry's replacement uh, Randy Nagabauer, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know Randy and I got to serve together. But there was no small amount of questioning whether or not a guy who was predict you know. Particularly associated or identified with the oil business, could he in fact uh, learn enough about uh, production agriculture to uh, uh, to do him any good in terms of representing? So I committed right off the bat to get on the ag committee. I got on the ag committee and stayed, and uh, you know tried to learn as much as I could, as often as I could, worked my way up to a leadership role, and and uh, leading a subcommittee for uh, for four years, and then uh, chairing the last uh, last three now. So. Uh, been uh you know, there's some folks out there that when I became chairman of House Ag, it was a bit of a surprise to them. I hope pleasant surprise, but nevertheless, a bit of a surprise based on uh, the, the anxiety they all felt when uh, when I won the, the election in two thousand four and, and sworn in in oh five with as little you know production and agriculture background as I uh, as I had.
1: Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about. Uh, I've talked with people on the Hill, people in the industry, in the cotton industry. And they find it quite remarkable the kind of legislative feat that was just pulled off by you and your committee. Um, and some say it's one of the most remarkable feats they've ever seen that you are able on a budget neutral provision to tag that to the disaster bill. Um, when was this first put into motion, mr. Chairman?
3: Well we've been trying to figure out a, a, a way to get the cotton faces a tax program pretty much right from the get go didn't work. Folks didn't take it up and it didn't uh didn't provide the kind of uh, uh safety net that all of us thought it would uh when it was uh, put in place. Uh it really kinda got screwed up right to the last minute when when uh Stabenow and the, and the Senate uh messed with it. But uh last April when we were trying to do the omnibus, uh we had tried to get uh we thought all along that Secretary of Ag had the authority to redesignate cottonseed as an other oil seed which would have put the product back under Title I. Uh, secretary Vilsack, uh, his lawyer said no. When we got the new secretary, as, as much as Sonny wanted to do it, his lawyer said no, he didn't have the authority. And so in that April time frame last year, we were trying to, to, to designate uh, cottonseed as an other oil seed and thereby getting it under Title I. Uh, Debbie Stabenow and Frank Leahy wanted a big uh, dairy fix at the same time. They were effective in linking them together, even though there was no link that we weren't using dairy money to do the cotton fix. And uh, because they asked for so much money in dairy, the uh, both they they were successful in getting both provisions jettisoned from the bill. Subsequent to that, uh, my brainiac team of Bart uh, of uh, Matt Church and Bart Fisher uh, came up with this idea of seed cotton, in other words, a blend of the value of cotton seed as well as the value of lint. Uh, to put them together, and, and as a combined uh, value, put that under Title One. And so mm-hmm. we started moving that uh, uh, legislation. I got it developed, and then we put it into the disaster bill that the House passed. We were looking for a vehicle of any any sort to get it to the to the floor, and uh, uh, and we also had a uh, uh, as it turns out a much more modest dairy fix in the disaster bill. So that's kind of where it, it was idling around. And then uh, I got John Cornyn involved. I convinced him how important it was. He he did enormous work on, on holding this in the Senate. Not just not just from the concept standpoint, and knew what the language. He knew what was going on, and, and really did us a great job of uh, of working that Senate. And then my team worked in the backside of all the various uh, committees, uh, staffers, uh, you know, making sure that we got it done through the Senate. As it turns out, the Senate Dairy Program was a lot richer. Than the one that was proposed last uh, 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 April, uh, but I was able to, say, to to say, "All right, you guys fix the dairy as long as I can get the seed cotton uh, proposal, then uh, we'll move forward." And that's that's what happened.
1: Well, wow. so how many hate emails have you received from Brazil?
3: <laughs> I've done so far
1: none. But you know
3: that the problem with the Brazil case is that was a 2002 policy. They were mad about the 2002 farm bill. Well, we did 08 and did 14. So, what they were mad about is is uh, you know approaching 15 years old and no longer the law of the land. It hadn't been the law of the land since 08. So anyway, so, it, I, I don't think this uh, runs afoul of that. Uh, I think they've got bigger fish to fry other places, and, and hopefully they'll leave cotton alone this time.
1: So let me be clear: you don't anticipate any sort of backlash from Brazil.
3: I don't. Now, that's not to say that they don't. They get, a, they get a vote in this issue. But I don't think what we've done, uh, you know, is, is so uh, terrible that they would, uh, they'd re- you know, re- resurrect that issue. Because yeah. we've done away with de- direct payments and all kinds of things since, uh, uh, since O2 that uh, they'd have to come up with a new case. It, with their case that they, they brought, you uh, know, as a result of the O2 law, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't exist anymore.
1: Okay. Well, that's a good clarifier, uh, because, you know, my understanding, and we don't have to get in the weeds of this, but whenever folks hear me bring up Brazil, uh, the essential problem was that Brazil went and said, based upon you know policy that we no longer have in place today but at the time that it violated world trade organization agreements and that if we were going to skirt on cotton then they were going to start skirting on silicon valley's products on pharmaceuticals on hollywood and movies and uh that's how cotton was shown the door in the first place is that an accurate assessment
3: yeah, um i know the cotton got uh you got hammered but uh the threats of retaliation are always out there. You can talk to your sorghum guys and know that they've Mm -hmm. been, uh, the Chinese have come after them as a result of our trying to enforce on uh, aluminum and steel. Uh, They're starting, we don't have all the paperwork yet, we don't know exactly what they've done to sorghum, but our sorghum guys are in the crosshairs just like cotton was in the crosshairs when uh, Turkey came after cotton as a result of our steel dumping case on that. So anytime you try to enforce your own trade laws, uh, the other side gets to retaliate and in this instance, while we're not enforcing against anything, we're we're doing something that we believe is in the best interest of cotton. And if uh, you know if Brazil disagrees with us, they disagree with us. We'll have to we'll have to fight it out. The good thing about President Trump is uh, he looks like he's going to defend on both sides. He'll defend uh, you know our policies implementation, or you know our protect our policies, but also insist on compliance with our trading partners on these deals. And so I, that that uh, that's that should stand this in good stead.
1: Okay, well, Chairman Mike Conway, uh, Chairman of House Agriculture, joining us if you're just tuning in. This interview is being aired from Lubbock, Texas, uh, and within a 100-mile radius of Lubbock, the cotton industry has some $4 billion annual economic impact. Uh, But even with that, Chairman, A lot of folks don't understand whenever we talk about WTO and budget neutral provisions and uh, even Title I and safety nets and price loss coverage program. Uh, I think to a lot of people cotton income uh, in this part of the world is kind of like Wi-Fi. We don't know how it got here but we just expect it to work. Tell us exactly what kind of losses we mitigated. You know, three or four off the top of your head that were mitigated with cotton being brought back into Title One last week.
3: Title One is an income support program that only is only available to folks who make a certain who make less than a certain amount of money, and there's 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 limits on the amount that can be paid out uh, under the title under the deal. But it will basically serve as a part of the a safety net. Crop insurance insurance against risks of Mother Nature and those kind of things. And this, uh, Title I, helps protect our producers from unfair competition, unfair, you know, prices being unfairly affected by uh, foreigners in this instance and, and, uh, in India. Uh, we heard at, uh, at the National Cotton Council on uh, Saturday morning that India has proposed a, a price that they will pay their uh, cotton producers equal to 150% of cost of production. So that kind of, you know, uh, screwing the price of cotton, I mean there will be more cotton produced in India than necessary because they're guaranteed a profit, and so folks that, you know, shouldn't grow cotton will be growing it just because that, that, that's a guaranteed. if, in fact, that India uh, program goes through, the, is, as it certainly is. But Title One I has, uh, is an income support program that protects folks making less than uh, a certain amount of uh, AGI every year, uh, and there are caps on it, uh, but it has to do with the... Uh, uh, you know, low prices that are affected by, you know, those prices affected by foreign competition, That's uh, that's unfair.
1: So, that's just for folks who are, who are listening and don't have, you know, it's funny to me, Chairman, in Lubbock especially, I think that there's a sense that there's cattle guard gates around the city, and that there are no problems outside the city that can come in, but certainly with cotton uh, in trouble, and I would think I would think you saved a lot of young producers. That would be the first thing to come to my mind. With I, well, I passion.
3: certainly hope so. We're we're looking to try to make that happen. Not only cotton, but all across production agriculture, we've got to get young producers into the business to uh, to begin to take the places of all those war uh, horses that have been doing it for so long and are you know aging out or or uh, looking to do something else. We've got to have some fresh blood across the entire industry. Uh, you know, as a as a backdrop, Jay. On balance. Uh, production agriculture has experienced a 50% drop in farm income over the last four years. The worst drop since the Depression, and cotton is surely right in the midst of all of that. Low commodity prices across the board have caused that, and, and no one really sees uh, high commodity, you know, increase in commodity prices, although cotton has ticked up a little bit uh, into the, into the near future. So we expect these safety net that has been, uh, you know, uh, underpinning uh, 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 sorghum and, and and wheat and corn and rice and and uh, soybeans uh... and now cotton to uh... to be there for these producers so that uh... don't only they can stay in business but they're more importantly that their bankers can look to see uh... uh... you know uh... additional collateral for, uh, for making loans so that they could borrow to put this year's crop in.
1: Yeah, and, you know, uh, about a year ago, this just comes to my mind, but about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I wrote a series for Breitbart, Texas called The Farmer's Plight, and in interviewing and getting that four-part series ready, Chairman, you know, one thing, I, it choked me up. I was talking to a banker, and he choked up talking about a couple, uh, elderly twin brothers that he had done work for for years, and they had to sell their land to finance uh, the next crop year. And that was their retirement, but they had to sell it. and I, That that was difficult for me to hear. It was a difficult story for him to tell. But the problem was is that that was not an uncommon story. Well, it's
3: not. And, and you've got a double whammy with respect to creditors, and that is that these bankers, particularly community banks and ag lending banks, understand the industry. They understand that, that character... Of the of the borrower has a great deal of importance, and it sometimes can can get you through the just the mechanics of what prices look like and cost and inputs, all those kind of things. The regulators now are going after those bankers and say, Hey, you cannot continue to carry that loan. You've got to you've got to qualify that loan or uh, or write it off. And so the bankers are they want to they want to stay behind the customer. They want to try to you know keep them in business because they've been able to you know through thick and thin. You know, live with those customers for a long, long time, but the regulators are not letting it. So, the the bankers are, are in, a, in a in a tough spot uh, caused by by the regulators tightening up the uh, underwriting requirements. And then that, of course, means that they can't stick with a with a borrower uh, at a point in time where they might otherwise have done it based on previous experience with a borrower. And then you've got all the borrowers' you know stories out there that are just in many instances, uh, you know, can just tear your heart out. The problem we've got is that. Yeah, uh, it's only about two percent of us folks involved in production agriculture, and the other ninety-eight percent, and one hundred percent, everybody who eats, uh, has benefited uh, from all this hard work and and risk taking and and uh, uh, you know year in and year out. But they don't realize it. Uh, they don't know why they spend less on food than any other developed nation in the world, and uh, they don't give the you know they don't they don't know to give the credit to the American farmers. Hmm. Those farmers certainly know it. And, uh, and keeping them in business is really it's really important. There's not a it's not too big of an overstatement to say that this is a national security uh, issue as well. I think most Americans would like to eat food grown and produced, harvested here in the United States. Uh, not that I'm against uh, you know fruits and vegetables coming from other places, but I want that that base uh, production to come out of the United States and and uh, a country that can feed itself is with George Bush safer than one that can't feed itself. And so keeping a strong production agriculture, a strong economy and a production, production and that then drives continued existence of rural America. You know, every every com- every conversation you have with respect to rural America, there are challenges across the board. How do you keep young people c- to come home? How do you prosper these small communities when the, the number of people working in production continues to shrink? But clearly without strong financing and or you know, a strong uh, economy uh, in production agriculture, then rural America will atrophy even worse than it is uh, it already has. So it uh, it goes hand in glove, and keeping these farmers in business is really important to uh, to all of us, on several levels. Uh,
1: Chairman Mike Conway, I have three more questions for you here, Chairman, and it just builds on the atrophy discussion in rural America. Uh, first, production agriculture certainly has its adversaries abroad. Uh, U.S. production agriculture—that is—but it also has adversaries at home. Uh, I know I followed Heritage Foundation; uh, essentially flipped out uh, whenever it was discovered that cotton was in the disaster that came out of the House—the disaster bill. Has this move that you've executed does it just embolden farm bill critics? I
3: think anything you do to, to, to for the uninformed or the the anti farm. Safety net group is uh, is going to draw fire. Uh, We expect it every time we go to the floor with something, so that's not unusual. Let me give you a statistic that'll kind of set you back on your heels. We broke the economic uh, food chain into five groups, percent groups. Top twenty percent of Americans spend more on food than the bottom twenty percent makes in disposable income. So as I'm looking at the farm bills, I'm looking at the safety net. Yes, I'm trying to. uh, producers in business to bring young producers in, all those kind of good things. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at that, that uh, paycheck-to-paycheck family out there, and I'm saying they benefit from the policies that we have in place, right or wrong or different. You can love or you can hate them, but they're delivering the most delivering the most affordable food supply to any developed nation in the world. And that mom out there who's struggling to keep her family together paycheck-to-paycheck, got a little more help this coming week when the, when the uh, tax uh, withholding rates kick in, I don't want to make her job any more difficult by arbitrarily capriciously raising the cost of food, which would happen if we flush all these American farmers out of business because we didn't have the right safety net in place. When I'm looking at changes to the the Farm Bill, is what does this do to the cost of food? How does this impact that? And if it braces the cost of food and that family doesn't get any more food or any better food or any safer food, then for goodness sakes, why would we do that to ourselves when the current system is working at a relatively modest uh, price from the federal taxpayer to make
1: this happen. Uh, tell me, you mentioned Congressman Arrington just a minute ago, uh, Chairman, uh, in his work in this, in his efforts. Um, I want to, I for the first time, you know, I just started paying, I, I, I cover state politics a lot, and I've just gotten involved in, in covering the Hill, and it is uh, It it was more than impressive. Look, people can disagree with uh, Senator John Cornyn's priorities. But they cannot disagree. There can be no disagreement about how effective he is... uh, on what he prioritizes in his work in the background, not just on the cotton provision and to whatever extent he was involved with the dairy provision, uh, but within the disaster bill as a whole and then the spending bill as a whole. Talk a little bit about John Cornyn and uh, the work that he's done.
3: Well, John Cornyn is a number two guy in the Senate. Uh, that allow that you know, from that position, which he earned, by the way, by the work that he's done before he got there then that gives him immense influence across uh, all of these subject matters. And so, you know, he serves on uh, on a couple of committees, but uh, he's got influence across the spectrum. As you see, he's not on the Ag Committee, but he had influence, influence with his colleagues in that regard. And uh, you just can't overstate the importance he's had for the state of Texas. Uh, there's no way to really do it, but it'd be, if you could, to look at what the disaster bill looked at it before John stepped in and started working on behalf of Texas versus what it wound up, uh, we're dramatically better off than we would, would have been under the previous versions, and you can lay that at at uh, his feet. He's just done a great job, and like I said earlier, with respect to this cotton deal, he he understood what it was. He wasn't just giving any lip service and saying, "Hey, you know, get, take care of Conway, get him off my back." Uh, he understood <laughs> it, knew why it's important uh, to Texas farmers and uh, Texas cotton guys, especially. So uh, uh, he is uh, he's been a terrific partner. Uh, in this whole deal and uh... it would not have happened without
1: it now you know look i i criticize guys when when i feel like it's fair to criticize them and i compliment them whenever they deserve to be complimented and in this era that we're in in this political era chapter or whatever you want to call it uh... where ideology is is what matters to everybody where they are ideologically and if they're far enough right or far enough left um... Those people, in my mind, oftentimes become Texacans. Uh, that's fine. They believe that, but they can't get things done. And Cornyn just seems to be the quintessential Texacan at this point. Um, well,
3: he is in the Senate making this thing happen.
1: You know, we get a lot of commentary,
3: a lot of comments about, well, Congress never works together. They can't reach across the aisle. They can't get anything done with each other, that kind of good stuff. And then when we do, which is what happened on Friday, it was a bipartisan bill. It was ugly, and there's a lot of things in there I don't like, but a lot of things I do like. But that's what compromise looks. Like. We got the defense spending that we wanted. We got a, a little bump on uh, on uh, domestic spending. I got the cotton stand the dairies in. You know that was a big compromise. So we wound up having you know seventy one senators vote for it. We had seventy three Democrats vote along with one hundred sixty seven Republicans. So it was a bipartisan vote. I know there were some guys who struggled over you know getting to a yes, and at the end of the deal they went no for a variety of reasons, but. This is got. This became the, the law of the land on Friday morning when the president signed it. So, compromise does work. It's not pretty, and you and the results aren't as uh, uh, as pristine as you would like. But that's the beast. And so, if you want uh, pristine results, then you mean you Republican only or Democrat only, and. And I I don't hear a lot of folks say, at least openly, that that's the most preferable way that we should be running this government.
1: Yeah, Chairman Mike Conway. Last question for you here. You mentioned dairy and cotton. The two big fixes for a farm bill have been fixed. Uh, so, do we need a farm bill now? And what are you going to take up if if we do? Well, we do because the current one expires. Okay.
3: And then we go Fair back to point. some permanent law nonsense from. Nineteen thirty-seven, nineteen forty-eight. So yes, we need a farm bill. We've spent three years okay, on uh, uh, examining SNAP. Now most of the money in the farm bill gets spent on SNAP. So we've done a three-year look, twenty-one hearings, uh, just focused on policy. Not one time did we talk about amount of money being spent there. We just said what should the policy be, what should it look like, how should it help people, how should it not trap people, all those kind of good things. And so we're going to have some very uh, strong reforms that uh, we'll bring it forward, so that would be important. And then, like I said, we've got to, to uh, renew this farm bill because the current expires, and we, if we don't, uh, you know, reauthorize uh, all of these various programs, including the dairy and the and the, uh, and the cotton program that we just put back in, uh, those expire at the end of the year, so we've got to put those all back in. So, yeah, farm bill is necessary. I'm looking forward to it. I've got some good folks helping me uh, to get this done, but uh, having gotten uh the cotton and, and dairy thing done, that uh some leverage that the Senate repu Senate Democrats would have had uh with me is you know, while I try to negotiate this deal. So I think the negotiations will go a little better and quicker. Uh it also the dairy side creates a baseline that uh that we can work with. So uh on balance it uh it got less difficult as a result of what happened on Friday than it was before the, the before the vote on Friday.
1: He is Mike Conaway about to jump on a jet plane and head back up to D.C. from Midland. Thank you so much for making time, Chairman. Good to be with you, Jay. Anytime, buddy. Thank you. Take a short break and uh, get back in with some more high cotton here on the other side. I
0: was a rambling man when I was
1: young be a man until my days are done Hey, welcome back in. This segment's brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992 for a free hassle-free estimate call them today 806-744-7666 806-744-7666 she is with politico ag and her name is Catherine boudreau calling us from well you're calling us from the swamp right Catherine? that's
5: right
1: washington dc <laughs> hey so this is your first time on the show we appreciate you making time to come on katherine
5: Thank you so much for having
1: me. Pretty busy week last week uh, with all the political drama, with the spending bill and everything leading into it. Um, take us back to, let's go back in this process, because it's no small thing here, I mean we just had uh, Chairman of House Ag, Mike Conway on, um, it's no small thing that Cotton has been brought back into Title One uh, all of a sudden. And... Uh, it, Talk to us about how that went from the House to the Senate, and why the holdup on the disaster bill altogether.
5: Yeah, sure. So uh, the fact that this uh, getting cotton back into Title One was included in the two-year budget and disaster agreement that Congress passed on Friday was the culmination of a years-long lobbying campaign by um, the cotton industry, and. Uh, they've been trying for, I would say, at least two years to slip a similar provision into a, some sort of spending bill, uh, but it has been difficult to accomplish, especially because the dairy industry had been also asking lawmakers to help them and uh, fix one of their programs called the Margin Protection Program, uh, which is similar to an insurance program, but uh, they wanted additional help as well. So there was, uh, I, I guess back in April there was an attempt to make cotton seed eligible for title I, and uh, it was included in a spending bill that went over to the Senate and it was ultimately blocked and that was because Senator Sabanow who's the ranking member of the Agriculture Committee and Senator Patrick Leahy who is the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee were like hey if we're gonna help cotton we definitely have to help dairy But they couldn't come up with an offset. They couldn't come up with a way to pay for what would have been about eight hundred billion dollars, or sorry, eight hundred million dollars, to fix the margin protection program. So it kind of fell through, and that was extremely bitter fallout between all of these lawmakers because Chairman Conway was uh, pretty sure that the provisions for cotton would make it through. And when they couldn't reach a final deal on dairy in the Senate, he was pretty upset um, and had some pretty biting words for Senator Stabenow and Senator Leahy accused them of playing politics. Uh, But anyways, fast forward to July, and there was, I think, a little bit of time for lawmakers to say, hey, maybe we should try to do this again. Both these industries really need some help. So they had a meeting, actually, and it was a meeting arranged by Senator Thad Cochran from Mississippi. He's the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and he uh, obviously is representing Cotton Farmers as well. And um, so he and Leahy, they have a history of working together, and they're like, we need to address both of these industries and not have some of this political back and forth delay this any longer. So they ha- gathered a meeting, and they gathered the meeting with House Agriculture Chairman Connolly, Senator Stabenow, uh, the National Cotton Council, National Milk Producers Federation, um, and they finally agreed that, hey, if we're going to do this, let's, let's get on the same page about helping both industries, and that way we don't find ourselves where we just were in April. Um, so then, I mean, come December, uh, Chairman Conaway was able to get a provision into the disaster bill that would help Cotton, and the rank- his his partner on the House Agriculture Committee, Colin Peterson, from Minnesota, he also uh, came up with a provision to raise a, a $20 million cap on the livestock insurance program. Um, Which was a win for dairy producers because I think that will open the door for USDA to create some more policies for some larger dairy operations, and then um, that kind of stagnated this this provision in a a House disaster bill in December. I think it was about eighty billion, eighty one billion dollars that they were going to send in disaster money to states like Texas and uh, uh, California and Florida who were hit by wildfires and hurricanes. Um, So it kind of stalled in December, but you know, Chairman Conaway. Over the last month or so, was lobbying. He was personally lobbying senators uh, to kind of have get them to go for his proposal in the House disaster bill, and eventually it ended up in the budget deal.
1: Hmm. Lots of background there, (laughs) Catherine. (laughs)
5: Wow.
1: Uh, So you mentioned uh, one thing that's really interesting to me is the infighting. I mean, you would look at. the different ag commodities and think that these guys really work with each other because you know uh, higher tide uh, all ships are raised up and that sort of thing but uh, that's not really the case Uh, to step away from the process for just a minute and just describe particularly it seems like we've seen over the last year or two cotton and dairy going at it why is that the case
5: it all comes down to money in the end so like i was saying um it, it there is only a certain amount of money to go around for every uh, commodity and program in the farm bill um uh, and that's determined by the congressional budget office they project what the spending is going to be over 10 years and that's called the baseline and that's how much you have mm-hmm. um and how then agricultural lawmakers are kind of staring down this like september 30th deadline to get a new farm bill and they see that they're pretty stuck for cash they don't have any additional money so, if you're trying to help one commodity and you don't have enough money to help the other, it kind of puts them against each other.
1: Yeah. Wh- which groups fight the most? Take us behind the scenes.
5: <laughs> well, it's always regional, right? So, I mean, dairy versus cotton. I mean, mm-hmm. cotton is grown in Texas and in some of the southern <laughs> states, and yeah. then you have like dairy, which is. I mean, they have a pretty strong support system in the um, in Congress because. You know, there's a lot of dairy-producing states, but it's maybe in all 50 states even. I mean, of course, some states are well-known for it, like Wisconsin or, you know, California used to have a lot more dairy than it does now, but even yeah. my home state of Vermont are known for dairy. Uh, and then you also have, like, this northern-southern kind of break where there's a lot of, like, peanut and cotton growers in the south, for example, um, and then, like, the more Midwestern, like, corn and soybean growers, and so they're kind of fighting over uh, what comes down to dollars <laughs> in the farm bill.
1: So it yeah. all gets regional.
5: Mm, very regional, hey. yes. That it. They say the farm bill is purple <laughs> because it's not really Republican Democrat. It's more where you're from.
1: Yeah, it's more terrain. That's my kind of battle, right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, right makes where, it more
5: interesting, yeah. I think, than the you know typical Republican versus Democrat
1: fight. Yeah. And then you like you'll get corn and the livestock guys going at it too, right?
5: Yeah, yeah, uh, and and this is my um. This, This is my first farm bill that I've been covering, but that's what I've been told, too, because the livestock sector doesn't – they have some, like, crop – you know, they do crop insurance, and um, they have some programs, but a lot less so than, like, the commodity growers. Uh, so if, they, if livestock growers come in and want some sort of new program, they kind of have to figure out how to come up with some money for it. They don't want to, you know, it's hard to take away from one other sector.
1: Yeah. Catherine Boudreaux of Politico join us here on other side of Texas. You know, Chairman Conaway just, just said that he, you know, of course, direct payments are gone in cotton now, and there, there are other ways of dealing with it, which uh, knocks off Brazil's premise in their dispute at the World Trade Organization, which centered around direct payments. Uh, he, he didn't foresee that being a problem, uh, but there will be... Uh, some cajoling that goes on at the WTO now that cotton's back in where do you expect uh, cotton producers to look to next uh, to fight wars at the WTO and otherwise
5: right yeah at this point I haven't heard a a word from Brazil maybe I've missed um, something that their industry has done I I, I I don't know if you heard it but I
1: asked him if he's gotten hate emails from Brazil and he said no (laughs) he said no? he said no
5: yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that Brazil is definitely keeping an eye on this. They're going to be watching it closely, I would imagine. And, you know, of course, they can't file a WTO case until the program has been implemented. Maybe for a few years, they got to collect some data, and they'd have to build their case that, you know, we're, the U.S. is unfairly subsidizing the industry, mm-hmm. the cotton industry specifically. So it would be a few years away before they could build a case. Uh, whether they have one or not, I don't know. I, I really couldn't predict Um not knowing the ins and outs of the previous uh, cotton program and how that compares to price loss coverage, for example, which I know is what a lot of cotton growers are going to be signing up for. Um, so yeah, remains to be seen. I think it's a few years out before there could be a potential WTO challenge.
1: So you've been with the cotton lobby. You've been on the inside of this process. In the end, were you surprised it got done?
5: You know, I I wasn't because. Uh, I think once they figured out how to pay for dairy as well, I think it was good to go because essentially it's like a win-win for lawmakers and these industries. Like I was saying about just not having that much extra money. Actually, they had no extra money for the farm bill, mm-hmm. um, and that made it extremely difficult to come up with new initiatives if you want to do something different. Or um, So once they were able to secure the uh, dairy, come come up with the dairy fixes for the Margin Protection Program. Uh, it actually added about $1.2 billion over 10 years to the Farm Bill baseline. But so that's extra money that lawmakers have to work with. So I think they saw it as a, a win, not just for cotton and dairy producers, for, but for the broader Farm Bill process.
1: So, but that stays within the Farm Bill, the $1.2 billion.
5: That's right. Yeah, that that will add to the Farm Bill baseline. So they can use that. I mean, I think there is pressure on Congress, you know, the lawmakers crafting the farm bill to keep any additional spending, like, or if you're going to cut spending or or add spending in a certain title to keep it within that. So this 1.2 billion in dollars, I imagine it might stay in the commodity title. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, she is Catherine Boudreau. You follow her on Twitter: C E B O U D R E A U C E Boudreau. Um, tell me. Speaking of farm bill and new money available potentially, um, unless they just keep it under cap, um, what I asked Conway, I'll ask you: the big two obstacles are out of the way now. So what's left?
5: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, maybe I think people are speculating too. Like, does this take pressure off of lawmakers to actually pass the bill this year, or will they just extend it? I mean, there is you know senator um, Stabenow, who is the ranking member of the senate agriculture committee she could potentially be thinking oh like what if the senate flips i i would be in control of the committee you know after the election so maybe i'd want to hold out but i i don't know I, all all industry groups and lawmakers are saying no like we still want to get a bill done by september 30th of this year um and you know there uh, there are a few other issues you know cotton and dairy sucks a lot of the air out of the farm bill conversation but there are other programs that lawmakers want to fix or change Um, and also there's like 39 programs that don't even have a spending baseline beyond this fiscal year Um, and they they're a fraction of the overall cost are only like 2.8 billion dollars over the life of the five-year farm bill but um, still like these are important programs to certain constituencies like there's a uh, small watershed rehabilitation program, and there's a lot of incentives in the farm bill for converting crops to biofuel. Also, there's like promotional activities for farmers markets and organic. Um, so, they will have to reauthorize those, and those uh, to so that they'll be extended and they'll be funded. Uh, and if they don't do that by September 30th, and yeah, they just lose, but you know, those programs can't continue. So, they're pressured to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then the elephant in the room is always snapped uh, the food stamp program and you know chairman conway has held like something like 18 or 20 different hearings on that and so he mm-hmm. has a lot of changes cooking uh, th- and i haven't seen him yet he has yet to release a draft of a new farm bill he's keeping it pretty uh, close to the best but he will want to make changes like stricter work requirements for adults who aren't disabled and don't have children um, and i know senator uh, pat roberts the chairman of the agriculture committee he's also working on some stuff to, related to snap um for example like how states calculate this error rate uh, and that's been the subject of an investigation actually by the department of justice so states were basically gaming the system so that they could earn bonuses uh related to this snap error rate issue
1: hmm. Catherine boudreau appreciate you making time there good run thank you so much yeah thanks for joining us and uh have a good evening uh, You too. Great talking to you. I hope you you don't find it demeaning if we call it the swamp.
5: I don't. I enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you.
1: (laughs) Have a good evening, Catherine. Thank you again.
5: You too. Take care.
0: out of red clay and baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is the other side of Texas with Jay Leeson. Adios,
1: goodbye. Fire the semi engine. It is blue collar Bill with the blue collar report. Bill, you've been working all day. Putting in your sixty hours a week. Yes, sir. Uh, tell us what you're
0: seeing. Man, I'm out here on the road and rocking into the sunset after a fourteen-hour day. It's really, really dry out here, Jay. Really, really bone dry, and it's becoming concerning. Uh, I, you know, there there is some some optimism out here in the field. I mean, we we did get that uh, the, that cotton move back under Title one, and that sure made a lot of people feel a lot better. I think they'd even feel a little more better if, if we had a little rain to go with it. Uh, Lord knows these ranchers are out here trying to build back up their herds from 1950 levels, the lowest levels in decades. Uh, need water, we need grass. Uh, this is now is not the time to happen to be buying by, uh, by aid. Everybody really needs to be careful out there with, with the fire thing. No. This, this place is... For As far as you can see, it's tender box dry, and it wouldn't take but half a spark to burn down the whole county.
1: Now, where all you travel today, Bill?
0: Man, I went, uh, I've been all the way out to Spur, and, and then uh, all the way back through Lubbock, and back out just the other side of Warbrook, and then back out to Spur again. So I've been running east and west, my usual, my usual trail.
1: Bill, tell me what you do on the road. Do you have a podcast you listen to, or do you just listen to Merle Haggard all day?
0: No, I listen to a little music, and then a lot of times, of course, I listen to the other side of Texas with Jay Leeson, because oh. that's where you're going to get your, your honest uh, news and information.
1: Well, I appreciate uh, that plug, Bill. You know,
0: and then, yeah, you know, I listen to the podcasts and stuff. I try to keep myself entertained and my brain exercised.
1: Yeah? All right.
0: Besides, if I just stay distracted, it, 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 uh, it keeps me from getting all irate about our political situation and stuff.
1: What do you get so irate about with the political situation?
0: Well, I'll tell you what. It doesn't take much anymore, you know. <laughs> it, it, it really doesn't, Jay. I mean, I'm not on top of the issues to the same extent that you are. And I don't think a lot of guys out here, they're busting their hump 10, 12, and 14 hours a day out from here in the field. or up on top of the issues to the extent that you are and some of the others.
1: Wait, are you but, saying I don't bust my hump, Bill? No, I, right.
0: I, I, I just think you make a, a concerted effort to stay truly informed.
1: Okay, I'll take that.
0: That, that I, I don't. I, I know you read more than I do.
1: <laughs> well.
0: Anyway, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to get fired up. I mean, on the national level, to me it looks like both the Democrats and the Republicans are in bed with the Russians, and, and whatever they're going to do is not going to be in my best interest. Hmm. Uh. Which really infuriates me is I'm sitting out here, you know, semi-retired, self-employed, you know, paying 50% of my income in taxes by the time the smoke clears. I don't feel like I'm being represented. Uh, working 80-hour weeks. My wife's working 60-hour weeks. We cannot afford health care. I just got a new quote. For me, my wife, and my son, Jay, all three of us healthy, no pre-existing conditions, $18,000 a year for health insurance, that would also come... Was a ten thousand dollar deductible? Hmm. How am I supposed to pay for that? Unbelievable! It just, it, it's just—it's crazy out here. But yeah, yeah I, I like to listen to music and keep keep my podcast turned on, so I don't think too much about that. And, and, and normally, I'm able to do it until we get into election season, at which point both the Republicans and Democrats try to pull the good old boy card, and this is where I get real bent out of shape. And I hope they're listening because I know I'm not the only one. Well, they, they, jump out, they, jump out, they jump out of their Land Rovers and Lexuses and walk onto this commercial set. They put on their brand new boots, their brand new jeans, their brand new LLB shirt, and their Carhartt jacket, hold a brand new pair of gloves, and tell me how they understand my position and what it's like to be me in a hard-working
1: Texas. Oh, you're talking about political commercials.
0: Yeah, exactly. No. Every time. Every time. Randy, they all do it. <laughs> You know what? I believe what you guys have to say when the gloves you're holding in that commercial got some dirt on the palm and there's a stain on that Carhartt jacket and some wear around the edge of them.
1: So, blue-collar Bill, if you have a rug or something, the tools on the wall are going to be used? That's correct. That's correct. All right, And
0: that's the way it should be. It's, it's disingenuous. It is I, I, I get the feeling these guys are not representing me and then they... They try to dress like me and come at me through my TV and get me to buy back in. Well, why should I? What am I getting for my money?
1: That's a good word in political season. Blue Collar Bill's political takes. Uh, no, Blue Collar Bill's political commercial takes there. Well, yeah. keep on trucking there, Bill. Uh, hear that horn? You hear that? Hey, oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Bill, thanks for taking some steam off on air with us.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that's... You know, that's just my two cents, and it, it may not make a hill of beans, but I sure wish these guys would be genuine, authentic. And you know, now that we've got our, our our corporate tax situation and our farm situation squared away, let's start trying to take care of the working man that makes this whole thing run.
1: Good word, Bill. Thanks for chiming in, bud. Thanks, sir. There he is, revving up, driving away, blue collar Bill other side of Texas we close out today I want to uh, invite you to go to our website uh, in subscribe to that site and you follow us on twitter at other side texas and you can follow us along on facebook as well like our stuff share it i uh, really appreciate the calls i've gotten the texts. i know that uh that first podcast went up and i got a lot of feedback on that uh podcasts are always recordings of the program and uh, you can get those there since we do run weekly at this point and with that i just want to express my gratitude that you would spend the evening with us i'm uh, gonna jump off air now and go run and watch a little girl play basketball so to borrow a line from the great bob bullock only death will end my love affair with the other side of texas we'll see you next time and see you online on twitter facebook and there at othersideoftexas.com